Greetings, it is April 27th and I am currently in Athens, Georgia, which is modeled after the original Athens in Greece, of course, so it has a lot of Greco-Roman architecture here in town. Uh, it's the uh, location for the University of Georgia, which is probably a solid academic school, but known more popularly uh, by its football team and all the players that get drafted into the NFL. I've had a good time here. I was going to go to Asheville, but with rain coming and uh, some other issues uh, in Asheville, uh, more expensive than Athens. I, uh, Athens was a halfway point between, what was it, New Orleans and North Carolina, where I have to eventually wind up, which isn't Asheville. It's Kernsville, which is further east. I decided just to hang out here uh, for a few days and just kind of chill my jets for a bit. I had made a long trek across the United States back from California, as you've been following along maybe. You know that I drew, drove out to California in a very circuitous and circular way, visiting friends and family along the way. And spent a really wonderful four days in California with my buddy, and he uh, really... Uh, showed me the inside of a lot of cool historic sites and uh, cultural cultural uh, icons inside of Los Angeles and nearby locations. Uh, we played the first disc golf course that was ever, ever designed. It was out in Pasadena. Uh, there was so much out there, but what else did we see? Uh, I saw the... Uh, Location where the original Lone Ranger uh, opening footage was filmed. It's on a ranch. Uh, saw that. Saw where Neil Young composed after the gold rush. His house up in Topanga Canyon. Uh, saw Eddie Van Halen and Alex Van Halen's childhood home. Plus the garage out back where they used to jam. Got to see where Jackie Robinson uh where his house was, it had been torn down since, but he uh, grew up in Pasadena. Uh, went to the comedy comedy store, which is legendary. Went to a Dodgers game. Uh, Dodgers won at the bottom of the ninth. It's pretty dramatic. Um, went to Malibu. Uh, saw where the Beach Boys uh, had their picture taken for one of their first albums. What else, man? There's so many things. So went to Broman's Bookstore, which is one of the best bookstores in the world. It's in Pasadena. A lot of stuff from Pasadena here. Uh, saw where Pete Maravich had died playing basketball for in a pickup game. Pete Maravich was a basketball star that had converted to faith in Christ, and he uh, dropped a minute after James Dobson, the uh, Founder and president of Focus on the Family, who was doing a film about Pete Maravich, asked him how he was feeling. He said he felt great, and then he dropped dead. It was at a church of the Nazarene, somewhere in Pasadena. Uh, but, you know, being with people who know the inside inside story of a place is super valuable, because there's just things I would just drive right by without even recognizing the importance of them. Uh, so I've kind of noticed, either with strangers or friends, that having someone on the inside to give you some insight or on the inside to give you some insight is super, super valuable in terms of location place. Um, here's another example. I just was hanging out in Tucson, Arizona and was looking to drive towards Austin, but it was too long of a drive to get to Austin in one day. It was like 13 hours and that just pushes the envelope too much for me. I can do about eight hours, maybe nine, but then it gets dangerous. I have this feature on my car that starts to tell me when 
losing my attention. It gets more and more serious as time goes on. I guess it looks at where my eyes are focused or maybe if my eyes are closing. And I noticed after about nine hours that I just I don't have much left in the tank, uh, literally. Uh, but I was talking to a bartender at a, at a bar in Tucson. He said, stay, stay in Van Horn, Texas, because it's not known for much else besides being kind of a halfway point between Tucson and Austin. And it just has a lot of hotels. And I wasn't looking to hang out the following night at all. I just wanted to find a place to hang my hang my hat, fall asleep in a hotel that was relatively inexpensive, so I did that. But I was in Austin, visited a brewery called Lazarus, which is owned by a Reformed Christian. He also has a coffee shop there. Unfortunately, he wasn't in town, the guy that runs the place, owns the place. He was in Montana, of all places. That's where he's from originally. Uh, but we did communicate a little bit online, and he's a good dude, and so I really enjoyed going there and some other places, and... Uh, in in, uh, in Austin, uh, came through uh, came through New Orleans. Was there for a Friday and Saturday night. It was chaos. Uh, the uh, mixed martial artist or UCF fighter Nate Diaz apparently was there Saturday night and got in a fight with somebody. I was in bed by then. Uh, by about ten o'clock, I headed home. I didn't stick out on the streets very much, or maybe even earlier nine o'clock. But New Orleans was quite an eye opener. And I'm glad I went there. Uh, had some beignets and had some of uh, the coffee at uh, Cafe du Monde, which is chicory and also some milk. This thing is called Cafe Alot or something like that. Something in French. Uh, but I was in the French Quarter, which was chaos. And I walked around Saturday morning after Friday night when I had gone to bed a little bit earlier. And uh, man, it was just wreckage. But they cleaned it all up for the next day. It's amazing. It, w- it was just destroyed. It had so much glass and so many bottles and so much trash and just food and barf and all kinds of stuff. I did ride a trolley uh, on Canal Street from uh, end, end to end and then back. That was pretty cool, buck twenty-five. Uh, so that was neat. Had some really, really good food, shrimp and grits, uh, po' boy, of course. Some other things. So that's just kind of an update. Uh, it's been pretty incredible, uh, this road trip. I, as much as I love places, I love people more. And I valued just the human connection. I was having a conversation with um, a woman probably about my age, maybe a little bit younger the other day uh, at a hamburger joint for lunch. And we just got a kind of an existential conversation. And I was just talking about the road trip and how I didn't want to ever say I didn't do it. Like, you know, put things off too, too much and just wind up your dreams, wind up dying on the vine. So I was like, man, I just wanted to do this road trip. For a long time, and I finally just put it into gear and got it done, and I'm on my way to finishing up. Have two more stops here, and you know, and here in uh, uh, Athens, Georgia, which is the home hometown of the band REM. So there's a lot of iconic sites around here with REM, which is neat because REM was a pretty influential band with uh, with me growing up. I like them a lot. One of the best American bands of all time. Uh, but I got this conversation with this woman, and I just keep it really general. I uh, just kind of talked about like how three of my mentors had passed away about two and a half years ago, and these were people that were still teaching or still doing their jobs. Uh, they found a lot of meaning in their work, so they continued to do so. Uh, but how I didn't want to die at my desk. My three mentors all died uh, still working uh, you know, pretty much full-time with their positions and they were all involved in education or training or something along those lines 
and how I was discouraged by the thought that I would just die at my desk, uh, face down in my paperwork, despite computers, there's still a lot of paper to shuffle and to file. I always have backup copies of things. I like using computers, but um, I also use uh, use uh, paper copies to mark them up and file them and all that. So I'm still reading this book here to get to Excursions with Kierkegaard. Uh, Others, Goods, Death, and Final Faith by Edward F. Mooney. That's He's a professor emeritus of philosophy and religion at Syracuse University. I think he's retired now from what I can tell. And I'm still not real clear on his faith position. I think he hints at it here in the part that I'm going to read. But this kind of gets back to this conversation with this woman. I didn't witness to her. A lot of times we Christians feel pressure when we interact with people where we don't know where they come from spiritually is we feel like we have to, you know, mention Christ or try to witness to people and tell them about God. And I'm not ashamed of my faith at all. But I'm also sensitive to the fact that it can come across being pushy with people, like you don't even know them. And pretty soon you're giving them uh, what you perceive as, you know, it could be even a, a solution to their problems or the solution to their questions. And it's just lacking depth. It's too quick, too soon. And I had to learn as a Christian that relational connection is super, super important in sharing the gospel. People have to know us first uh, before they're going to listen to us. And that's not always true, but more, more true than not. I think the conversion rates from people being accosted in the street uh, by somebody preaching the gospel or haranguing people um, and in New Orleans, there was somebody yelling during the day on a loudspeaker, and I couldn't quite hear him, and I didn't want to hear him too much. But it sounded like there might have been a preacher telling people to repent. The tone of the of the words it was it was far enough away that I couldn't quite hear what they were saying, but I could hear it. Couldn't hear the actual words, but the tone of the of the harangue seemed to be somewhat condemnatory or whatever, or prophetic, if you want to take it that way. But I got this conversation with this woman, and I was just saying, like, I didn't want to not do this, do this road trip. I didn't want to die not doing it. But it, it, here's the challenge, is that I don't see this life as all that there is. Uh, I would very much struggle with the idea if life was only this, this existence on this earth, with just getting out of bed in the morning. I don't know if I would have the spiritual, emotional, psychological energy just to be like Sisyphus and keep rolling rocks up hills that are just going to fall down at the end of the day. My faith gives me power. My faith gives me hope. My faith gives me love. Um, and I'm, I, I want to be authentic. I don't know if I could do life without being a Christian. I just, I think it's, it's the peace that makes everything else fit. And I want to read this, um, and I kind of talked to this woman about that, but not directly. I mean, I wasn't overt about it. And I feel bad because we had this really, really deep conversation, and I wasn't looking to, like, get her phone number or hang out with her. That's not where I'm at as a person. I like being single. I'm not interested in having a fling or having a relationship. Some people are built for singleness, and I, I just am, and it doesn't make it right or wrong. I just like not having to answer to someone else about my life. Uh, and that could be perceived as a lack of accountability, but it's also just a lack of not wanting to be criticized. Because if you invite somebody into your life and vice versa, you give, you give them an exact uh, access to you emotionally. And there are some things that we deserve to be held accountable for and confronted about. But a lot of times it's the tension in relationships or just two people who see things differently it's not right or wrong. It's just they, they just have two different perspectives. 
and there's tension and there's there's conflict and there's friction and I don't, I don't like that part of relationships I really don't um, there's parts of relationships I really really like but I like them to be kind of voluntary I don't like them to be too close I like to kind of come in and kind of leave and that's just my thing like a wave you know high tide low tide and friendships and I have very very dear friends don't get me wrong who can speak hard words in my life and I expect them to but I'm just not into the intimate day in, day out, every day, haliotosis and everything else in between uh, relationships. So, you know, with this woman, I wasn't looking to, you know, uh, have a one night stand or get her phone number or extend the relationship beyond just this interaction at this hamburger joint. Um, I was eating a hamburger, just enjoying lunch, and she was taking a break from her job and uh, she had a day off, and she works uh, like Tuesday through Saturdays or something. Uh, but I just talked about how my sense of like not wanting to die at work and dying face down in the paperwork was just compelling to me. That I just didn't want that to happen to me. That I had other things I wanted to do. But I look at everything we learn in this on this uh, planet kind of like a school for whatever comes afterwards. I can't imagine that we go through all these highs and lows and all these experiences just to have the whiteboard cleaned off at the end of our lives and we just go into like a, an anonymous uh, post-Earth existence. I think uh, as Bono says, he said this to Col uh, Stephen Colbert the other night, or at least in a video that I watched the other night, that this, this life is a birth into the life that comes and uh, whether that birth goes well or doesn't go well really depends on our faith. So this is uh, chapter four, a faith that defies self-deception. It's from Excursions with Kierkegaard, Others, Goods, Death, and Final Faith. Edward F. Mooney, who's a philosophy and religious professor of renowned a Kierkegaard, uh, Kierkegaard scholar. And I uh, apologize somewhat for my rambling nature today. I um, got food poisoning the other night. Uh, Sunday night, there wasn't much open here in Athens after about 7 p.m. when I came rolling into town. I think it was around 7, maybe a little bit earlier. But there happened to be a, a taqueria pretty close by, like a very legitimate Mexican restaurant. And I am not sure where this is, where I got food poisoning, but um, I ate some delicious nachos. But I have a feeling that something in the nachos had just gone south. It wasn't the meat, I don't think, but it might have been the vegetables or the tomatoes or something, <clears throat> or the cheese. But I, I've been very, very... Um, been very distressed the last couple of days in terms of my internal uh, system and it hasn't been pretty so i've had to stick close to the um the hotel so i'm a little bit worn out uh but you know you gotta take the good with the bad travel and going on trips is not always one glorious experience after another although i would say 95 percent of this trip has been absolutely amazing there has been some very very hard times with traffic jams and people getting in crashes and just the trip taking a lot longer than it was supposed to because the accidents have had to be clear, really rude drivers. I think we can make a lot of assumptions about the nature of our culture based on how people drive. And sometimes people just drive in a very selfish way, but they're not trying to hurt anybody else, but they're just so self-centered. They don't understand that if you go 80 miles an hour and you're in the right lane and you cut in front of somebody, that it's, it's very dangerous. It doesn't, it doesn't follow the rules of the road. Um, I was in a situation, I think, pulling out of New Orleans where somebody, you know, somebody cut in front of a bus on a, on a merge and somehow got into the lane in front of the bus going about 80 miles an hour and I didn't see him. Uh, even my, uh, my, 
a situation in my car which has all this technology to identify cars that are close by wasn't even triggered. The person had the audacity to honk, honk the horn at me after blown by a bus on, on a ramp, getting in front of the bus, going 80 miles an hour, and trying to pass me on the right-hand side. I was like, this is not necessarily my issue, man. And uh, I've just seen this over and over again throughout the United States is that people people drive very recklessly. And I don't think they're trying to be malicious. They're just so self-centered. And they just don't understand that this is kind of a social contract on wheels around here. You can't act like a maniac. So there's people that go super, super slow that don't follow the speed limits. So those people should get off the road. If you can't go the speed limit on a consistent basis, unless you're hauling something or you know your vehicle can't go a high speed for some reason, like it's a huge tractor trailer, you, you got to get off the road because you're not following the social speed limit. You, it's dangerous to be too slow. And that's what precipitated my um, my interaction with this other driver is somebody in a pickup truck was going 45, mile an hour, 45 miles an hour on a 65-mile-an-hour road. So I had to pass that individual, and that created the next situation where this person merging on the right going 80 miles an hour almost hit me and then had the audacity to honk at me as if I had done something wrong. Uh, I try to avoid being too confrontational on the road, uh, but I have my own private way of handling it. Just that's very passive aggressive. I just make a make a gesture to myself, and then I let it go. Um, so anyway, I'm just been beat up a bit the last couple of days. I got to get to North Carolina today, so I do apologize. I'm a little bit run down. I just stayed very close to the hotel the last couple of days when I could. Without totally making this uh, stop off in Athens useless, I tried to balance it. Didn't do it com- completely well. Paid some consequences, but all's well that ends well, I suppose. I didn't get arrested. A faith that defies self-deception. So this has got a footnote on it, which is uh, chapter 4, 1. Let me just look this up while I'm at it. Chapter 4, 1. Maybe I can't find it. I'll defy it, see if I can find it. <laughs> We should do this ahead of time, man. Chapter 4-1. So this chapter evolved from the paper read at Tel Aviv University uh, November 9th, 2011. I thank my hosts there for their generous invitation and my audiences for fruitful discussion. A faith that defies self-deception. So here Mooney seems a little bit more revered about faith. Uh, quote, it is uh, quite common, if erroneous, to assume that a person of faith must be a person in self-deception. From the outside, it can seem that faith is a kind of protective shield against harsh realities. Given our exposure to cruelty and suffering, what would be more natural than to adopt a belief that would act as a shield? If my self-esteem suffers at the thought that I cheated my neighbor, I can shield myself from this hurt by working up the belief self-deceptively that I did not really cheat him. If the span of history seems to flaunt one evil after another... I shield myself from the agony this occasions by working up the belief that God did not really cheat us, that he will make things right, or they have been right all along, that the world isn't rotten to the core. It reminds me of Van Halen's song. Ain't talking about love. I'm rotten to the core. Um, I always felt that Van Halen needed David Lee Roth for all of his egocentricity and all his narcissism to be the lead singer uh, and the front man for Van Halen. He just seemed to add something to that combination of uh, 
Eddie Van Halen's virtuosity, a certain boisterous nature and verbal nature of David Lee Roth. Interesting factoid, David Lee Roth grew up in a very rich family. His dad was a doctor of some type. And Eddie Van Halen grew up in very, and his brother Alex grew up in very humble circumstances. So Eddie had to become very inventive as a, as a kid and as a teenager with his guitars. He had to do a lot of like tinkering around on his own and make things work and come up with solutions to problems and sounds he wanted to create. Uh, just kind of, um, kind of bootstrapping it. And when he got, in, uh, when David Lee Roth uh, joined the band, uh, Roth's dad, the doctor, bought. Uh, the Van Halen's all new equipment, and they were at, like kids in a candy store. And it kind of explains David Lee Roth, David Lee Roth's kind of entitlement that he grew up in a very rich family. Everybody has pain, so who, kn who knows what he dealt with. Uh, but Eddie Van Halen grew up in an in a, in a economically disadvantaged household where his dad never really made it in America. He was from the Netherlands, I think, and his mom was from the Philippines or something. Their house was very, very humble in Pasadena. There was nothing large about it. Uh, there is a surface plausibility to this view that the genesis of faith lies in self-deception so, and so cannot be authentic. Despite appearances, however, it cannot be the whole story. I'll argue that in Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling, we have a dramatic reversal of this position. Within the covers of that startling book, we discover that faith is designed so that it cannot be self-deceptive. And I'll just add that that we've talked about before that sacrificing Isaac was the greatest um, thing in terms of what Abraham would have to give up in his life. It was it, Isaac was his beloved son of promise and to have to sacrifice Isaac was the greatest demand that God could put on him. Uh, so uh, uh, Mooney's arguing that it can't be self-deceptive. Within the covers of that Starling book, we discover that faith is designed so that it cannot be self-deceptive. It may be brutal. Uh, the realities of faith may be brutal, uh, but not self-deception. Uh, Mooney's arguing otherwise. So it seems like Mooney might be a Christian, or at least be sympathetic to where Kierkegaard is coming from. On the, we, on the contrary, we discover that the trust and openness of faith is an inoculation against self-deception. The openness guarantees that harsh or rotten realities are not covered up and that faith trust is a stance, not a belief. It is not a belief. It, cannot, it can't be deceived about it. This is faith's two-pronged defiancy of self-deception. I don't quite agree with where... Mooney um, takes this, um, these first two paragraphs in this chapter. The openness guarantees that, that inoculation against self-deception. The openness guarantees that uh, harsh or rotten realities are not covered up and that faith's trust in a stance is a stance, not a belief. If it's not a belief, it cannot be deceived about it. This is faith's two-pronged defiance of self-deception. I disagree with Mooney here, and this is why I think I'm not sure where he comes from, is that um, Abraham believed that Isaac would be raised again if he was sacrificed, because he was the child of promise. God had promised that the, the nations would be blessed through Abraham's son, Isaac, and, uh, and Judaism has been a, a tremendous blessing to the world. Um, the Greek world was at a standstill between... Uh, what would be called deductive and inductive, inductive reasoning, being and becoming. It had, had come ground to a halt. 
and it was de devolving into just neo nihilism or nihilism. And the Chinese way and the Hindu way don't really answer those questions either. They just leave it open. Uh, the idea of karma is pretty cruel when you think about it, which is like people kind of deserve what they get in this life based on what they did in the past lives. So, you know, things like child abuse and sexual abuse and rape and murder are just part of the karmic wheel doing its business. Um, and again, as Bono would say, karma karma is, a, is, an awful, is an awful concept. Not the westernized version of karma, but how it's truly taught in Hinduism. Now, I do find some affinity with Buddhism in terms of, like, the, 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 I think, the noble truths and all that, that existence is suffering and watch out for your attachments and this and that. But I think Buddhism, because it applies a universal, like attachment's not always bad. It's more of a question of what are, your, what are you attached to. If you're attached to things that are passing, then it's like, a, um, it's like an anchor or a sinking ship. But if you attach yourself to faith and belief in God and things that are above, then that's a, that's a holistic, holy type of belief. Um, so Buddhism, in the end, applies a universal detachment uh, solution to things that you really should hold on to. But there is a time to jettison stuff, too, uh, things that are unproductive or destructive or sinful, things along those lines, uh, trying to impress people. And trying to uh, trying to present ourselves a certain way to please the crowd that's here today and gone tomorrow. It was really interesting in New Orleans. The hotel I was staying at on a Canal Street uh, had a fraternity that was meeting there for its annual conference or something. And so this was a fraternity of pretty well-to-do men, young men, and they were looking to party their brains out, obviously, for a couple of days, but a lot of them had brought their girlfriends with them, and they were, you know, college girls, um, they were at their prime. They they are as attractive and as beautiful and as whatever uh, that they'll ever be, so there were a lot of beautiful girls walking around with um, their frat boy boyfriends, and... Um, you know, and I just kind of looked to myself and says, you know, I, I don't have a chance here. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I don't, I don't see myself as in the same substrat as these people. They are, they are in the prime of life. Uh, they are, their flowers are still bright and vibrant, and they'll, they'll be my age eventually, by God's grace. Uh, but the things about trying to impress this crowd or trying to hang with this crowd or buddy up to this crowd or whatever, being one of those old guys that doesn't know his place. And I, I could have tried to uh, hop on that trolley with those young people and pretended like I was still a college kid. Uh, but I just don't invest in it. I realize what my status is in life and I am who I am. And I try to have a realistic view of the pluses and minuses of who I am and my age and all that. But faith gives me purpose, and I feel bad that I didn't tell that woman at the hamburger joint uh, more about my faith. Uh, but I also fear just kind of throwing it at people and not providing any context. Like it's just to say something is either too much or too little. And I kind of sensed that she was interested in talking, but I also sensed that she had other things that she wanted to do, and she... I think initially wasn't that interested in talking, but as we got talking, I think she realized that I'm a person of some acumen and some philosophical depth, and I'm not just a lightweight. 
So she seemed more willing to stick around and uh, have a conversation. And I was the one that concluded the conversation. But I felt like maybe I should have said more. But again, I'm, I'm reluctant to do that because I'm not sure that's the right thing to do in every situation. I think sometimes we just have to listen. Sometimes we just have to hear. But she was at a point in her life where she was questioning reality. I think she had had some issues with her parents also that had been really sick and maybe she had lost a parent. Uh, so she was around my age somewhere, maybe a little bit younger. I could tell that she had been extraordinarily attractive when she was younger. She was still a very attractive woman. But, you know, age has a way of, uh, you know, putting wrinkles on things and making us less vibrant, whatever. And there's still a beauty in age, don't get me wrong. There's some very beautiful older women that just have that confidence and have that peace of mind and they know who they are. And they're not going to run off and get Botox injections and, you know, tummy tucks and all that kind of stuff. They just take care of themselves and they kind of, they say you kind of get the face that you deserve when you're an older person. And uh, I guess I've gotten the face I deserve, scars and all. But I look relatively youthful. I ran out, ran up, uh, <laughs> I got together, I didn't run into him, but I, I got together with a friend that used to be a pastor at Hershey Evangelical Free Church uh, many, many years ago, 20 years ago uh, in Berkeley. He's a pastor in Berkeley of all places. And he said, Eric, you look exactly the same. Which is not exactly true. If I'm wearing a hat, you don't see my graying hair. But facially, I still look very similar to how I looked 20 years ago. And he wasn't just flattering me. He's not that kind of person. But he's a pastor in Berkeley, which is only 2% Christian. So he's been also appointed to be the lead in the evangelical free denomination of how to minister to this new generation of skeptics. There's a lot of People growing up and people who are older now that never don't have any reference in the church. They, they, they haven't gone to a church. They've never been through a service of a church. They don't understand the language. Uh, they don't understand the nomenclature. They don't understand the rituals. Uh, so they have no frame of reference. Uh, the Christian faith doesn't have any resonance with them culturally. And so my buddy is ministering as a pastor and also as the lead coordinator of how to evangelize this kind of what's called postmodern generation of people that have grown in the discontents of modernism, which is Gen X and all the generations that follow. They have no frame of reference. They don't think God is relevant because he hasn't been relevant to their lives. They've never been taught. They've never seen it in action. So it's a very demanding, it's a very demanding uh, ministry and he's well equipped for it. Super smart, uh, it was funny. We only got together for about half an hour because it was relatively last minute. And uh, he has a little Mazda Miata. And uh, rather than sit in the coffee shop and drink more coffee, because I'd already had two shots of espresso at, at a Pete's Coffee in, in Berkeley, where it was where Pete started, uh, I said, Andrew, I can't drink any more coffee. I need to do something else. And he said, why don't you come hop in my car? So he has this Ma Mazda Miata convertible that has... Uh, uh, removable uh, roof, of course, and I barely fit into it, but we buzzed around uh, Berkeley for half an hour, and he took me to the original Pete's Coffee, which is legendary in Berkeley. It was several uh, blocks away from the Pete's that I was at, enjoying my espresso, and I wasn't planning to drink more coffee before I ran into Andrew, but um, I just couldn't pass it up when I saw another Pete's. We met at a different coffee shop, though. So we just buzzed around town, and he took me to all these little sites, and showed me where things were and we stopped by the original Pete's which was pretty cool and saw all the pictures and ran into an old hippie that said the original Pete's guy was a real jerk to his employees and he just had a 
<laughs> he had something there, an axe to grind. I mean, he kind of joked he had been there forever. I think I talked about that last time. I don't know, it was two weeks ago. I think two weeks ago I was in Missoula, so I don't remember exactly where I was two weeks ago. But anyway, still have North Carolina ahead of me to see some friends that used to live in York, Pennsylvania. So I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to probably go to the Billy Graham Library up in Charlotte if I can handle it. Like I said, I've been kind of recovering from food poisoning, so it's not exactly safe to go on a long trip. Have to stick close to the uh, hotel room or the bathroom. I'm hoping I'm a, I'm better. Don't mean to be too graphic here. Use your imagination. I haven't felt sick. I've just felt tired and felt worn out from it. And then I head to uh, D.C. Uh, to see some friends that used to live in Lancaster, looking to move back to Lancaster. Uh, we're going to hopefully go to Fort. Fort McHenry, I think that is, where Francis Scott Key wrote the uh, words to Star Spangled Banner, which was already a song before he penned the words. The words were just put on top of a song that was already existing. So looking forward to that. When I get back uh, to uh, Pennsylvania, I'm just going to chill for a day or two. Um, and then I'll get into the 18 upbuilding discourses from Soren Kierkegaard and just take on hopefully one essay uh, episode for 18 weeks. But, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen. It might be three episodes per, uh, per essay. But he uh, prefaces each one of these 18 upbuilding discourses with the scripture verse. Uh, and I've read it before and I've taken a lot of notes on it, but I'm really looking forward to reading again. I don't intend to do a review of this book anymore. I just did this because it's called Excursions with Kierkegaard. And uh, what would Soren say about a trip like this? The people that you meet and the, and the, and the love that you share uh, and hopefully uh, the way you can point people to the reality of faith and God's goodness despite all the horror of the world. That's really what life is about. The food and the drink uh, last couple of days, I haven't drank any beer because I've been trying to recover. Um, you know, it's just beer. In the end, there's some places that are better than others. I went to Russian River out in, uh, out in Santa Rosa along with the uh, Peanuts Museum with Charles Schultz. And my apologies if I talked about this last time. I think I think that was still to come by my, my, by my last podcast, but I've always wanted to visit the Peanuts Museum. Out in uh, Santa Rosa, and Charles Schultz had a gift for expressing both the beauty and the sorrow of life and using the vehicle of humor to do it. And I think a lot of my philosophical and theological orientation comes from Charles Schultz. It's just he was so influential in my life. I love those comics. And I had a lot of his books as a kid. One of the best trades I ever made as a kid when we did one of those neighborhood swaps where you set up tables and you give away something to someone else and they give you something back was I traded something to my neighbor, Scott Engel, who was about four or five years older than me, maybe three or four years older. Uh, I gave him something of no consequence and got a series of all the early books from Peanuts from 1959, 1962, 1964. And I read those things from cover to cover many, many times. And I don't know what I gave him in exchange, uh, but it was well worth it because I still have those books today. So Charles Schultz was extremely influential in my life and the idea of good grief that somehow grief could be good or some paradox that God could teach you through tragedy or hard times adversity is a teacher I always remember that cartoon that uh, uh, Lucy was sitting behind her doctor is in stand and Charlie Brown was talking about how hard his life had been and how he was currently experiencing a lot of suffering and 
Uh, Lucy said something to the effect, well, Charlie Brown, adversity prepares you for the things of life. And Charlie Brown, the next panel, looked at her and said, what things, Lucy? And she said, more adversity. And I remember reading that in college. I had picked up one of the one of the books again and read through it. And that made me, made me laugh that adversity does prepare us for more adversity, which is going to come one way or another. You try to avoid some adversity, but sometimes it's unavoidable. And this last chapter of the book ends in a reflection on death. And uh, I just decided not to get into that today. I just want to re reiterate and reemphasize the idea that faith can lead to a clearer understanding of the way the world actually is. Whereas if you don't have faith, uh, chances are that that charge of self-deception can be leveled back at people that don't have faith. Because I believe um, God did reveal himself in Jesus Christ, and somebody who says that's irrelevant or not pertinent to the issues at hand is, is deceived. So we need to strip those things away and answer people's objections with uh, care, but also with conciseness and inf informative uh, discourse and conversation. So I'm willing to do that. And uh, thank you for hanging with me. I've seen the podcast continue to do well in my absence. Uh, I think a lot of people are going back and listening to episodes they originally didn't process through. So you can probably hear it in my voice that I'm a little bit beat up. Uh, if you listen to this uh, today, uh, which is, I think, Thursday, uh, pray for me. Pray that I would continue to uh, drive safely and get to my next destinations safely and get my car back in the driveway without doing something stupid or something stupid happening to me. I've been really fearful on this trip of just blowing it somehow, doing doing something really dumb uh, and damaging my car and having to get my car towed and getting hurt. But you have to face your fears. You have to realize that that's just reality and you have to do your best despite the risk. I'm glad that I risked this. I'm glad I rolled the dice. I have, a, I have so many things to think about in the, in, the, in the genesis of this trip. And throughout it all, it's going to provide a lot of um, thoughtful reflection and insights and all kinds of stuff but I've been more thankful like I said than anything of just um, being able to reconnect with good friends and family members throughout the United States I'm old enough now that I've collected a constellation of friends uh, mostly uh, my family is more on the eastern side of the United States Indiana and Minneapolis after that after that uh, Minneapolis I've been pretty much hanging out with friends but I have a constellation of family and friends across the United States and I'm extraordinarily grateful that I've been able to hang out with these people and I still have two groups of people to see. But just pray for my continued safety. Uh, I'm gonna try to eat some breakfast this morning, get something down on my stomach so I'm not driving completely on an empty tank. I haven't eaten since yesterday morning. I haven't drank beer for two days. So I'm feeling a little bit, I'm a little bit beat up and a little bit tired. So if you listen to this podcast before too long, pray for me. I will be home on Monday sometime. So if you listen before Monday, just uh, just ask God to give me wisdom, give me strength uh, to finish up and to not do anything that's uh, you know dangerous to myself or someone else on the road or elsewhere. Thank you. I did bring coffee on the road. I can only drink hotel coffee for about two days before it starts to affect me in terms of my internal system. I won't get into the details, but... Uh, I have organic coffee on the road, brought my entire coffee kit with me. Uh, so I'm um, finishing up on the coffee. I'm going to head down try to eat some breakfast. 
And I hope you, everybody's doing well. Thank you for uh, spending time with me. And uh, I hope to be doing a podcast next Wednesday on 18 Upbuilding Discourses. I'm going to wait till 40 minutes exactly and just conclude it at that. God bless.